The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Among the broad public of the United States and the China and all the people who have made it great, uh, I'm reminded a little bit of the story of the guy who kept talking about the Johnstown flood. Uh, and uh, somebody says, uh, he asked people, can he give a speech tonight? They said, yeah, just remember that Noah's in the audience. So with Mike Blumenthal here, uh, I should be more reserved than I will be. Uh, and uh, Steve asked me to keep it under half an hour. And as you know, our faculty is programmed for 50, min- uh, for 50 minutes. <laughs> and I will try my best. And what I'm going to concentrate on tonight is Deng and foreign policy. Uh, and try to give a sense of how he was different from Mao. And uh, I think very critical is the fact that he started, and I'll try to trace him through uh, some of his experiences in foreign policy and how what shaped his uh, career. Uh, Of course, there's only a few highlights. Uh, People ask me, uh, did I learn anything that surprised me during the course of the 10 years I was working on the book? And one thing that surprised me is that uh, he wasn't the only guy that started uh, reform and opening. Pogba Fung had actually started before him. But another thing that surprised me was just how much Dung did know about foreign affairs and how many people he saw during the course of his, his career. As Lee Guan Yu told me when I asked him about it, uh, he had had experiences of seeing how imperialist countries developed, how they handled World War II, how they started the Cold War, uh, and uh, had a broad experience. And he also had so many close contacts with so many foreign leaders. And uh, while the reporters who uh, attended the June 4th Tiananmen demonstrations in 1989 uh, feel that Dunn was a villainous person uh, and did horrible things, as all of us do. Uh, I think there are many foreign leaders who met him who were quite impressed by his intelligence and his ability. When he was 15, he passed exams uh, to go to France. And here he is. He doesn't look like somebody who just came in off the street from the poor uh, work, poor peasant uh, or working class. Uh, here he is after he arrived in France at age 16. That's the first picture we have of Dung. And he was in France for five years, and then he was in the Soviet Union for a year. In 1924, they had the uh, European Chinese Communist Youth Congress to gather together. And uh, Chen Yi had already been set home, uh, but there were many others who later played a prominent part uh, in communist life. Zhou Enlai, who was uh, over six years older than Dung, had a lot more experience. He was the natural leader of this group. <clears throat> at the left, uh, at uh, your, your left, looking at this picture, you see Nierung Chun, who played a role uh, in science, uh, Li Hu Chun, who played a key role in the first five-year plan, and the back row, uh, some people say he was five feet tall, uh, others say he was really only four feet eleven. Deng uh, Xiaoping. Uh, I think what's interesting is that these people who had been in France, and that was the largest single group of Chinese students overseas in any single country after World War I, uh, they 
when they needed people who knew about foreign relations, the economy, science and technology, uh, and what it was like to have a modern country, uh, they were the ones. If you look at them, they don't look like people who were poor peasants uh, or uh, people uh, who had been slaving in factories. They had passed examinations, and in order to pass the examinations, they had to come from good families to get good education. And when they went to France, the idea was that they would work half-time uh, and uh, they would save money uh, and study half-time. But when they got there, this plan was worked out in World War I before uh, French men who survived the war returned to the factories. So when they got back to the factories, when the time done arrived in 1920, uh, there weren't the many jobs there. And uh, there was also inflation and, and depression in uh, 1920, in the early 20s in France. <clears throat> and so the people who made money lived in those nice houses that Doug and his friends saw, uh, were living very comfortable life. But if you looked at what was uh, happening in Factory 4, the Frenchmen had very uh, poor salaries, didn't make much money, and uh, the foreigners were treated even uh, more poorly and had trouble finding the dirtiest jobs that most Frenchmen uh, did not want. And so they started study groups. And when they started the study groups of the Chinese students in France who wanted to rebuild China, uh, they read about what had happened just several years earlier, 1917, in the Soviet Union, and the idea that capitalists exploit laborers and that imperialist countries exploit others made a lot of sense to them. And a lot of them joined the communist uh, movement at a time when there were very few uh, communists. At the time when Deng joined the Communist Party, there were less than 1,000 members worldwide. <coughs> uh, we're skipping way up until the 1950s. Uh, <coughs> when Deng moved from the Southwest, where he had been in charge, the party secretary in charge of the Southwest Bureau from 49 to 52 to Beijing, uh, he moved into uh, government and then party affairs. And at that time, as uh, general secretary of the party uh, for over a decade, uh, he had the chance to meet members of the communist parties elsewhere. He didn't, during this period, meet foreigners from the West, uh, but he did already have a responsible position. And if you think of it in American terms, uh, it was like somebody who went to work in the White House in his early uh, 20s and then stayed close to the leaders of power. Uh, he had, as you can see in that earlier picture, he was close to Joe and Lai, and now he was close to Mao, and here he is in the Soviet Union. Uh, 1957 when Mao makes a speech about the east wind winning out over the west wind. Uh, here he is uh, with Khrushchev and in 1956 uh, Deng was also in Moscow and met Khrushchev and while he was there meeting Khrushchev the first time uh, uh, Khrushchev uh, made the famous speech denouncing Stalin and Deng concluded at that time that it was such an overwhelming criticism of Stalin that all the people who had worked in the party, and that was all the important people who had worked with us, and all important people who had worked with Stalin, that the authority of the party was, was fairly badly damaged and that China should never denounce uh, their first leader no matter what he did in the same way. <clears throat> He met a lot of other uh, communist leaders, and here he is 
with Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh was in France uh, at the same time that uh, Dunn was in the early 1920s, but they really didn't get uh, friendly until the Yan'an period, uh, where they uh, saw each other. But here was a time when they were fellow revolutionaries and fighting imperialism together uh, before their national interests really began to diverge uh, uh, shortly after Ho Chi Minh's death. <clears throat> now, if you look at uh, Deng Xiaoping, he doesn't seem to have an inferiority complex uh, from being short. Uh, here he is uh, on the, at the uh, Beijing airport on the way to Moscow in 1963. He had been in charge of writing the nine nasty letters uh, exchange with the Soviet Union, and he was on his way to argue with Sislov in 1963, and uh, Mao was just tickled with the way that uh, Dung uh, fought off Sislov in these quarrels. Uh, and uh, was ready to give uh, Deng all kinds of high positions. Then we fast forward again. In 1966, Mao purged Deng in the Cultural Revolution for being too independent and for not following uh, his way. I think the key issue was that about 1959, when Deng felt that they should be doing more to reverse their policies and they greatly poured, which had failed, uh, he uh, Deng, uh, uh, was disappointed that Mao uh, was pushing ahead, which Deng thought devastated the country. And Mao said at the time, uh, during that period, why is it that Deng always sits in the back row and doesn't seem to listen to me? Uh, he knew, Deng knew that if he was close and Mao said something, he would follow. But if you keep a little distance, uh, it would be okay. I think one of the key uh, facts uh, about Deng is that from 69 to 70, uh, from 60, uh, 69 to 73, uh, he was down in Jiangxi, uh, where he had time to meditate and think about what he would do. One of my colleagues at Harvard, David Gergen, reminded me when I was talking to him about Dunn's leadership that uh, Abraham Lincoln and de Gaulle and Churchill had all had high positions, then they were sent for several years in the wilderness, and then came back and had a much clearer picture about what they wanted to do. And even though Dunn wanted to grope for stones, uh, across the river and had a lot of specific things that couldn't be decided. I think the general direction he was thinking through by that time already that he needed some big changes. And I think the fact that he had so much foreign experience very much influenced the way he would say. This, to me, is a very poignant picture because uh, Joe and I, who had done so much of leading foreign policy, uh, was being criticized by Mao in 73 and then got cancer. And when China, uh, mainland China, took the Chinese seat in the UN in 1971, replacing Taiwan, it would be logical that Joe and I had so much experience uh, that he deserved to be the big spokesman at the UN. But here he is at the airport, uh, passing on the mantle to Dung. Uh, he had cancer and was not, and was uh, under suspicion that he wouldn't be tough enough, and that Dung uh, would be tough on the Soviet Union uh, when he went uh, to the United Nations. And so here he is passing the mantle uh, to uh, Dung. <coughs> Here's Dung presenting in the 74 in the United Nations, 
and the United Nations he had long talks with people from the third world and was already seen as a leader among the third world here he is up close at the United Nations and here he is in uh, 19, May 1974 while he was in New York uh, meeting our, our favorite diplomat uh, Henry Kissinger uh, this is the first time that Kissinger met Dunn because in the earlier periods when uh, Nixon went and when Kissinger did his missions with John Lai, Dunn was still down in the countryside. Uh, as, of course, Chao Wan Hua on uh, your left as you're looking at the foreign minister. Uh, and uh, Kissinger thought at the time that Dunn seemed to be on a training mission. Uh, he didn't seem as suave and as smooth uh, as uh, John Lai had. But I think also Dunn, who had just been reinstated, knew how mercurial Mao was. I wanted to be very careful in dealing with Mao uh, and didn't want to make any errors and was very cautious, uh, unlike the confidence he showed uh, later on. In the 70s, uh, Dunn then from the 73, 74, 75, after we came back and uh, we, we saw him in uh, that picture after he came back in the 73, uh, meeting Sihanouk, uh, <clears throat> he uh, saw most of the foreign Western leaders. He was already taking Joe and Lai's place. So for over two years, he was the key person that foreigners met. And there's no question that he knew a lot about foreign affairs. He could give a 30-minute presentation on the history of relations with the Soviet Union or Vietnam or all kinds of issues by the time he was coming to power. After being thrown out by Mao the second time at the end of 75, uh, Dung was out, uh, and then Mao died, of course, in September 76. And Dung was allowed to come back at the beginning of 77 with Quago Fund as the chairman and the premier. When Dung came back, he volunteered to take part in education forum. And uh, at that time, in 1977, uh, he felt that he did not want to challenge Bhagavad politically and he felt that education, science and technology would be more important when they started modernization in a serious way and that they wanted to get started. So at this session he asked uh, the education minister and others uh, if they could start having exams that fall and uh, get ready uh, in December or some month that year to open, reopen the universities in a big way. Under Mao making revolution, uh, when workers and peasants were given favorites, there was no way to have all-out meritocracy under exams, uh, but uh, because the workers and peasants would often not do as well as some of the bourgeois uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, the farm uh, owners uh, and the kids of those uh, landlords. And so uh, Dung uh, asked if they could possibly get started with real serious entrance examinations. And they gave all the difficulties of seven million people would be taking and how to organize and let them know what subjects they would be quizzed in, what, uh, how much, uh, and so forth. And the answer came back uh, that it would be very, very difficult, but it would be possible. And Dunn said, we're going to do it. We'll have entrance examinations. And therefore, all the people who passed exams uh, that year and entered the universities in the next several years are generally quite grateful to Dunn for reopening. Uh, <clears throat> Dunn 
felt that science was technology was the key to modernization. And one of the quick ways of getting a head start in science was to get advice from the best scientists of Chinese ancestry in the United States. At that time, there were three uh, people of uh, Chinese ancestry in the United States who had Nobel Prizes. They can talk in Chinese, they knew modern science, and they also knew the situation in China. So he had several visits with Yang Zhenning, one of the three. Uh, Sam Ting of MIT was another. Uh, and Li uh, Zhengdao and his partner, Li uh, Yunzi, were the third uh, pair. And he saw them all, and the question always was, what can we do to get science into China from the outside? <clears throat> Here he is meeting uh, another Chinese intellectual, the famous linguist. Uh, I show this partly because that young woman uh, to your right in that picture uh, is Iris Bien, uh, who was my first Chinese language teacher. <laughs> uh, and it was one tough cookie. Uh, I, I think one thing that hasn't got enough attention is that though Deng himself had, had traveled abroad in the United Nations in 74 and been a state guest in France in 1975 and really had a sense of what was going on the outside world, many other leaders didn't. And there were a lot of delegations that were allowed to go abroad in 1978, but the one that had the greatest single influence was Gu Mu, and the delegation of high-level leaders who went to Europe, when they came back to China, they were supposed to go for an hour or two meeting in the afternoon, they went for nine hours. And what they found was that China was much further behind than they thought, that uh, the Europeans were ready to lend them money, and let them into their factories. They were surprised, considering so many factories you couldn't get into in China, uh, that they opened factories to, to them, and they were ready to share their technology and investment. Uh, and uh, so that was a big turning point that helped shape the, and here's them uh, talking to Gumu, helped shape the, the mood that made them ready, not just them personally. Of course, one person could lead, and provide political uh, leverage, but you had a lot of other people going along. Uh, here's the Central Work Conference that really uh, determined that Deng would be the one to replace uh, uh, Hua Feng. And here they are, Shen Yun, about his same age, uh, offering, uh, who would offer somewhat different perspective and would deal with the economy who were chosen by their, to be the two great leaders of that generation with them having the role as spokesman. Just before that, Deng could see that modernization was coming, and the two countries that he needed to work with were Japan and the United States, because they could provide technology, uh, uh, they could provide industrial advice, management advice. And so he met to Tokyo, and here he is meeting uh, Emperor Hirohito. In the 2,500 years of contact between China and Japan, it was the first time the Chinese leader had met Hirohito, and uh, the, the emperor of uh, Japan. It was the first time in history. And Hirohito, in his own way, apologized for World War II, and said we must never let those things happen again, and then accepted the policy. And that made it easier for both the Japanese and the Chinese uh, to begin working together. Uh, here, Deng is visiting a steel factory that became the model for the Baoshan, the first great steel plant in China. 
here he is writing on the Shin Kansen, and when he was asked what it was like uh, not wanting to fawn on the West, uh, he said, it's very fast. Oscar, <laughs> uh, uh, here he is meeting Li Guan Yu uh, also just before uh, his uh, normalization with the United States. And, you know, uh, some of you are old enough to remember my generation. There were a lot of people who thought that like Chinese civilization, Confucianism, was not compatible with modernization. And didn't think that people of ethnic Chinese culture could really bring modernization. But here uh, in Singapore was an example. He won you, uh, even though he was born in 1923, uh, almost about 18 years after Deng was born. Uh, here was a country that was beginning with ethnic Chinese, 75% of the population. They had already moved ahead to modernization and done very well at it. Um, Carter uh, wanted to begin moving on the uh, normalization when he came to power in 77, but he uh, first was cautious because the Panama Canal treaties hadn't been done. In short, he sent his big uh, in May 78 to say we're beginning to talk we were beginning for serious discussions of modernization, uh, and Deng and Spig and me became great friends. Uh, both shared the anti-Soviet sentiments, uh, and both were ready to move toward normalization. Uh, most of the negotiations for normalization were conducted by uh, Chinese diplomats uh, and American diplomats, but the final negotiations were between Leonard Woodcock and Deng, and here they are uh, toasting the completion of those negotiations. Uh, as a result of those, uh, uh, Americans passed a message that a leader, a Chinese leader, would be welcome in the United States. Officially, uh, Bagua Fung was still chairman and premier, so they didn't want to say we invite Deng. Uh, but the message was passed from Woodcock to Deng that a Chinese leader would be welcome in the United States. And Deng uh, said, uh, how about next month? I'll be ready to come. <laughs> when we got to the United States, uh, here we have Herb Levin's friend and roommate at Harvard in 1948, prior, uh, Ji Chao Zhu. Uh, who uh, horse man, uh, studied a horse man in New York and Harvard for three years before he went back in the Korean War, uh, came as interpreter, a wonderful, not only language interpreter, but cultural goat. And you can see they're having a good time. When I interviewed Carter about Deng Xiaoping, he said uh, the visit of Deng was one of the, the best things about my administration. The four years were one of the most enjoyable uh, events of the four years. Here they are waving from the White House. Uh, here they are signing the normalization agreements. Uh, uh, Deng said he wanted Nixon to be allowed to come to the White House, and that Nixon, uh, in Chinese terms, had been purged uh, because he wanted to. But uh, uh, Carter agreed, and that was the first time Nixon was allowed back in the, in the White House uh, after uh, <coughs> uh, after he left the White House in Watergate. Here is Dong in the middle, a little guy, and Ji Chao that interpreter, standing next to him. Then there's a white-haired guy sitting down, uh, Tip O'Neill, the House uh, Speaker, Speaker of the House, uh, and. Uh, uh, O'Neill regaled Dung about the, the relation between Congress and the White House, telling him 
all the clever things that Congress does to slow down the White House. Uh, and they became great friends. They had a great time. Doug invited them to go to China next year, and O'Neill uh, accepted, and had, they had a great time. But when O'Neill finished this explanation of why it was important to have the legislature and the executive separate, uh, Deng Xiaoping said, wouldn't work in China. <laughs> uh, he visited various places in the United States, such as Atlanta. Um, and here he is uh, in uh, Texas at a rodeo. And a lady is writing up uh, to him and giving him a hat. And her brother, uh, who seems to know the story uh, better than I do, uh, said that it hadn't been decided before that Deng would put in the hat. And a lot of Chinese diplomats didn't want him to put in the hat. But when Deng did, uh, he immediately put in the hat. And we had this picture, which became the great symbol for Deng in the United States. It was a symbol to the American people that this guy was human after all. Uh, and uh, Bert Rochelle, uh, who's now the Asia Society here, who was at this event and wrote about the reaction of Chinese uh, who saw the movie uh, with this picture, said it was as if all the years of yelling at American imperialism were suddenly over and that was okay to start imbibing uh, Western culture, Western ideas. Um, uh, in 1975, when Dunn was in charge, it just happened that was the year that the liaison office in Beijing, the head of it was George Bush Sr. So they became great friends and they had many discussions over the years. Um, here is Ronald Reagan. Uh, and the amazing thing is that quite a few different uh, American leaders. Uh, Carter uh, and Bush and Reagan, they all seem to like Dung and feel very comfortable with him. Uh, and uh, here, as you can see, uh, Reagan's response was he didn't seem like a communist. Uh, Dung was, of course, the one who let Maggie Thatcher know that, uh, that would, China would resume sovereignty in 1997 over Hong Kong. And uh, some people said it was the match between uh, the steel factory and the steel woman. Uh, but as you notice here, uh, on the floor there's a, a spinning spittoon. Uh, it's characterized in Dung's uh, uh, way of greeting corners. And uh, some people say when you want to make an emphatic point, he uses a spittoon more than usual. And on this particular occasion, he used it a lot. Uh, here, a couple of years later, they reached agreement and are happily greeting each other. He also, Dung also wanted to get an international organization and uh, he moved as quickly as he could to get in the World Bank and here he is uh, with uh, Bob McNamara uh, here he is uh, with the head of IMF uh, I think many in this audience are old enough to remember the days before Google and Expedia. Uh, in those days, uh, we got some of our world knowledge through the Encyclopedia Britannica. And Dunn thought that was a quick way to learn about the outside of the world. And here he is working with Frank Gibney. They had the Encyclopedia Britannica in, into Chinese so they could 
uh, open up completely and learn everything possible uh, in, in about the outside. Uh, in the summer of 78, uh, Frank Press uh, led a scientific delegation. And uh, Dung was in such a hurry pressing uh, Frank Press uh, to get people into American universities as soon as we normalized relations uh, that Frank Press really had to call uh, Carter right away. Carter, uh, when I interviewed Carter about this, he said he didn't have to wake me up at 3 in the morning. It was one of the few times he was awakened during the administration. And I think it showed the fervor that Dung had for getting students abroad and learning as much as Senate as much as you possibly could. When somebody in that delegation said, what are you going to do if they don't want to come back? He said, it doesn't matter. They can still be helpful to China. We'll send as many as we go. <clears throat> he met a lot of other foreign business people uh, and Chinese business people. Uh, and uh, in the days before, you know, the Dell uh, uh, and so forth, one of the ways of one of the computer companies that was big was on Wang, and he was learning about computers from on Wang. Uh, <clears throat> here he is in uh, February '89 with Bush Senior. By the middle of 1988, uh, already was looking as if Dunn uh, would be able to begin to get Soviet relations back on a better track. And he said that if the Soviet pulled their troops from, away from Mongolia, they pull out of Afghanistan, uh, where they're way too bogged down, like some other countries have been since that time. Uh, and if the Vietnamese would pull out of Cambodia, uh, we get Andy Murthy here who's working on some of those issues. Uh, if that happened, we would welcome the Soviet leaders. So then we're so pleased with that that the foreign leaders came to Beijing, uh, and here they are uh, welcoming Gorbachev to Beijing. Relations broke in 1963 when Deng went to Beijing, and uh, when Deng went to Moscow, and now resumed in 1989 when he brought them to Beijing. And there were so many people who were and wanted more freedoms, and there were so many uh, foreigners uh, who were sort of uh, concerned and supporting the democracy, and there were so many uh, Beijing citizens who were unhappy that their uh, inflation had gone up so fast that their savings were rapidly exhausted. The demonstrations were all over, and here we have the goddess of democracy. Uh, and Dung sent in on May 20th uh, the troops told them not to fire and to try to bring order but they were stopped and they never were able to reach Tiananmen Square and so Dung told them to pull back uh, to the outskirts of Beijing and then on June 3rd they were given orders to do what's necessary to restore order uh, he warned the people to stay off the streets uh, but, and the troops as they moved in first fired pellets and uh, lengths into the air but when they, uh, they continued to resist the troops they fired on the, on the local people and we all saw those things on television this is a famous picture of the tanks moving in President Bush Sr. said that because he knew uh, 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 personally dumb and because he realized it was so hard to keep the strength, the relations had been so many decades when something went wrong. He was worried that even though he was applying sanctions and being very tough, that 
that he wanted to send a personal representative uh, to show that the relationship was still important and wanted to understand that. And so Brent Skullcraft was, and Dung welcomed him. Dung was in a very grim mood, saying that China is in a very weak position. Things would have to be done by the United States to restore relations. But he said, if the United States wants to do it, he's prepared to keep uh, closer relations. And his basic response was, China should not only remain open, but they should remain wide open. Uh, uh, <clears throat> after that, Dung uh, uh, said, we must have calm, calm, calm. And this was a picture that was distributed widely at the time. Uh, so was swimming in the wide ocean. You know, the oceans which are not going to come and go, they'll still be there. Uh, and here is Dung uh, spreading the word to the Chinese people uh, and telling people that foreign businessmen within a few years will want to get back in China. And they will talk to their governments, encourage them to restore relations. And of course, he turned out to be right. Uh, 1992, Dung was finally ready to step down. Here he is stepping down at the 14th Party of Congress. Here's his picture, and it's a very poignant picture as he finishes and steps down off the stage. Uh, here he is as an old man after he stepped down. Uh, here, in 1997, he passed away. Here is the scene of the memorial service uh, for Dung. And here is Chang Zemin giving the memorial speech. Uh, and Here's the UN Security Council where Deng made the main speech. The UN where Deng made the main speech for China's entrance, uh, observing a moment of silence on Deng's death. Thank you very much. We haven't given up on the idea of perhaps doing some chapters in Chinese, but I want to get it out exactly as I meant it first. It may be that people will duplicate the thing or uh, have their own version or pirate. Uh, there, there are things that could happen that I don't have control over. But what I do have control over is making sure that one edition gets out exactly as I meant it in Chinese. And the Chinese U Press uh, says they will do it both in Fontaine uh, for Taiwan Hong Kong and Jenkinsa for the main. So uh, the only trouble I think is that the book may become so high profile that the regime might have to respond uh, in some way like that. I, 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 some of you may be able to predict better than I can. But uh, I would be happy if we could get some chapters in Chinese exactly as I meant it. I think it's fair to conclude it won't be serialized in Rinder Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> Not for a while. But there are a number of uh, journals and magazines that are coming to me. And can we do a chance? It's a chance. Yeah, so. But your view is it has to be published in whole. So no, no, I, I, Well, I, I'm willing to have some chapters published. I mean, I haven't given up. But I want the whole thing to be exactly as I meant it and translated and available. So, so those people really want to know what I said. It is available, and I have enough confidence in the creativity of people who use computers uh, that some people will find ways to get back. The, um, you have this portrayal of Don, which many don't really, or didn't really see, which is of a real family man. Somebody who, who really spent time with his wife and his children in the latter years, grandchildren. And then, of course, you talk about the, the during the Cultural Revolution, Don Kufan, uh, 
I think you say full and out of the window. And I, think the, I think jumped is my best guess. Yeah, jumped, or, or in any case, that wasn't given proper medical care and, and then became paraplegic. The, uh, but you don't really talk about how that affected Dunn's view of kind of politics, of stability, of you know, kind of how he should deal with, with uh, even June 4th. I see my role as a, a biographer, as a historian, with the hope uh, that my book will be used by others, of not imputing ideas to them that I can't show. And what I try as much as possible to say, this is what other people thought, or this is what he did, you know, and trying to present it in such a way that the reader comes to more or less the same perspective that I do, without saying, he did that, and there's so many things about them where we don't have the smoking gun. I mean, he, he had learned as a youth uh, in the underground to keep things quiet, and the Cultural Revolution, they couldn't find papers on him because he hadn't written any papers, he didn't leave anything around. So it makes the task of biographer uh, a more difficult. You have to use triangulate. And my hope is that this, by presenting as much facts and circumstances, that this book will have some lasting value. Uh, instead of just saying this was dumb thought when I don't really know. Yeah, you describe, you have these great descriptions of dumb kind of, well first his rehabilitations and then his kind of these, these uh, reversals of verdicts. And as I read through those, I couldn't but be thinking of the irony of June 4th. And, you know, Don presided over these reversals of verdict. And will there be that kind of reversal of verdict after those who are responsible have passed through the, have passed from the scene? Well, the way I see it is that way back in the 20s and 30s, there are constant dues and broke. And some people whose verdicts were reversed were again, you know, reversed again and back and forth. Dunn was reversed three times. Other people fell and then came back and then reversed others. So, it may be ironic, but I don't think it's rare. I think, I think in, in fact, uh, after once Dunn came to power in 78 and reversed a lot of the er- earlier verdicts, there weren't many cases where people uh, in, in large numbers were criticized and sent out and punished in the same way they had been in the earlier years. So I think that the task of reversals uh, became lessened after Dunn's power, and though well, they may reverse that in uh, 1989, within some time period, perhaps when some of the principles are no longer around. Uh, I don't think that's unusual in the history of the revolutionary movement. But ironic in the sense that he presided over those reversals, and then probably the, the most damaging part of his legacy will likely have a, I, I would say, will likely have a reversal of already. I think you point out in the book, quite correctly, it's already occurring yeah. that the descriptions of the events have actually been modified. modified. And a lot of the people who were arrested were later released or their sentences reduced. So it's already uh, been the seriousness of the crimes of June 4th as treated by them uh, and others uh, has been reduced. The great description of the uh, 
kind of the Don Kuya Bang policy in Tibet in the book, which again, most people don't focus on, on the fact that it was a very different policy um, from today. Can you look forward and think, is there a time when we'll see the leadership, which clearly does not agree with the Don Kuya Bang policy, especially given Hu Jintao was the, the party secretary of Tibet, um, will be a time when we'll see a movement back to that policy. The people I talked to felt that that Dung could no longer trust the Dalai Lama. I mean, this is from the Chinese point of view, the Chinese government party point of view, that he wants the greater Tibet uh, that they could not possibly tolerate, and he wants a level of freedom that the communist regime is not prepared to tolerate. And it's hard for me to see that while he's, the Dalai Lama is in charge, it's hard for me to be optimistic that they will resolve that. But I could imagine, uh, say 10, 15, 20 years from now, uh, that they could begin to, to try a softer approach to, to, to that again. I think what they're trying right now is use money into Tibet and also co-op talented young people uh, to allow people a chance to, to able Tibetans a chance to earn uh, money and to learn English and go to institutions that uh, I'm sorry learn Chinese learn Mandarin some of them learn English but mainly Mandarin uh, and uh, therefore uh, become part of Chinese culture and. One of the Chinese leaders uh, told me, he said, yeah, well, what happened to the American Indians? You know, we're not going to do anything that bad. But, you know, greater civilizations have a way of absorbing as they advance more rapidly than some of the less advanced peoples. That's, that's their perspective. I have a good dozen questions. I have a good dozen questions left. Let me ask another, just my final question, and open it to the floor for questions. Which is again a great description on the, the end of Don's career, his southern tour, and he goes on this this extraordinary trip to kind of uh, reinvigorate reform. And he gives these he gives these speeches, and they're not covered. Yeah, the media, the propaganda department decides this is not our policy. So Johnson is already party secretary, but the propaganda department is making the decision, don't do this. Now, my question actually is we have seen similar situations in the last 12 months with the premier of China making a speech on the 30th anniversary of the creation of the Shenzhen FDZ and getting no coverage from Beijing media. Is this going to change? Is this, is the party going to, is this kind of the, the tip of the iceberg where we see the continuing conflict within the party and this is the way it gets resolved? Uh, others have focused on the current period much more deeply than I have. All of my juices to work on Dung's period. Uh, but my sense is that Dung had far more power and authority, even though he was officially out of power, than Wen Xiaobao does now. And I think it's a very different era when you had revolutionary heroes who had fought the enemy uh, in World War II, fought in the Civil War, 
uh, and to establish the regime. It's a very different era. The notes who grew up within the organization and are well behaved uh, and have served their way on up, but now don't have the revolutionary depth and background and authority. So I could imagine there being uh, more open display of different views, but I doubt whether anybody can easily have the authority that Dunn was able to muster uh, to counter the uh, General Secretary of the Party, Johnson. Uh, historians ask. I'm becoming a historian by just living so long. <laughs> Let me open the floor to questions. And uh, somebody want to come up and grab this microphone? I think that we're going to use that's right here. I think that's the question microphone. So we'll start here. Hi, thank you. Don um, worked so hard for the repatriation of Hong Kong to the mainland. He passed just before uh, the handover. Uh, what were his last words? And uh, does anybody know? And were they? Did they have anything to do with uh, Hong Kong or Taiwan or? Before he died in 1997? Yes. I haven't been able to find good records of what he did after he sat down at the end of 92. There are just a few entrances in the, the input of chronology, and I, I haven't, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, I really don't know the answer to that question. Uh, there, there may be some evidence, but I, I don't recall right at the moment. Sorry. Well, you tried, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Thank you. Did your researches allow you a direct perspective on to more or less precisely how many people were actually killed in Tiananmen Square? <clears throat> I've looked at different estimates, and I don't have any way of making a serious independent estimate. Uh, some of the original estimates of reporters, I think, were exaggerated. They, they put in many thousands. Uh, to me, the most, uh, the regime plays, I think the figure is around 300, and that's their official figure. To me, the best, the most credible account, I think, is the one that Tim Brooke put together. This is a Canadian scholar who was in Beijing at the time and talked to a lot of military attaches and to the hospitals, went around to the hospitals, and his estimate is somewhere in the order of seven to eight hundred million. So I, I, I have seven to eight hundred people. Seven to eight hundred uh, people. Uh, and uh, so I think you have a range, official estimates about uh, three to three hundred uh, you have Tim Brooks, which ran 1,700. I think the, the, the uh, estimates is 20,000, 30,000. Nobody takes those seriously anymore. That uh, the highest estimates, I think, that are within reason are a little over 2,000. So it's that I try to present that range, which is the best that I can do uh, from the data that's available. Hi. Totally. In any case, um, you you talked just a moment ago about uh, Dung's revolutionary death and his his background, uh, which makes him different than some contemporary leaders. Um, could you tell a little bit more about his communism? And how you, you talked a little bit about it, about how he was young, but for me, it doesn't it doesn't gel how someone goes from being a uh, being someone who's interested in, in 
China becoming a great power again and turning around and being a revolutionary and so on. So if you could talk just a little bit more about that. I think that at the time of 1919, when Deng's uh, sort of adult mentality was just being formed, and he was demonstrating on the streets of uh, Guangdong County where he lived, uh, these were people who felt China was so weak. It was being uh, taken advantage of by the world powers at Versailles. And they wanted to make China stronger. And they wanted to build up a base that would be able to make it stronger. And I think the picture that I showed of the young communists in, in France, 1924, they thought of themselves as a vanguard. And they didn't look like workers and peasants. And they, but they would lead and use large masses of people to build a strong organization. I think that's what they meant by revolution. I think what Mao meant was keep stirring up the masses. And I think where the key difference between Mao and Deng that probably occurred in the, uh, around 1959 was that Mao wanted to keep pushing for stirring up the masses. Mao was in a way away from the, the front line. Deng was the administrator, the one who was responsible for making things happen. And he wanted a crystal organization. He was a 12 years of military leader in, in wartime. And he wanted discipline. And he believed very strongly that the organization needed discipline. And he felt that Mao constantly serving at the masses, uh, and particularly in the Cultural Revolution, was just going to pull the country apart. So, on the other hand, I disagree with those who say that Mao, that Deng simply wanted to introduce capitalism. I think that, uh, after all, the land is still owned by the state. It's not owned by, not, you don't have individual property. You have state firms that are on a much bigger scale than they are in most Western capitalist countries. I think he also did not want the bourgeois, the bourgeois class to have an influence in shaping policy. He wanted the Communist Party high leaders to be insulated and not to be subject uh, to control by people who, who would pay for uh, their way to, to influence. And so I think in all those, it's, it's different from what we mean by capitalism. You may choose a different word, but I think that those who, who simply said Deng wanted capitalism under uh, some other name, I, I don't, that's not the conclusion I come to. Yeah. It might be. If it doesn't work, just speak loud. Like you loud. Um, just a well, a quick question, maybe not a quick answer. Um, one of the things, one of the verdicts that Dom did not reverse was uh, the anti-rightist label. Um, and since he was the person put in charge of that campaign, it was unclear to me kind of how that played out say in the 90s. So on the one hand, I would meet people in China who were still going out to the countryside to help with the harvest because they'd been branded rightists back in the 57, 58. On the other hand, Zhu himself was a rightist. And so I'm just curious, uh, 
what people were saying at the time was, well, this is something that will be reversed after Dom dies. But it seems, seems to me that there was something a little more comp- complicated and nuanced going on. What, what Dom said uh, is uh, later on, he, as you say, he was very central in, in leading the movement of the anti-rights campaign and was right at the forefront in punishing the intellectuals at that time. But when he came back in 75, he had Kuya Wong do a great deal to ease and improve the situation of intellectuals. And I think he felt at that time it's too early to, to reverse the verdicts in a formal way, but they wanted to improve the life of a lot of people who had suffered in the anti rights campaign. And then later, after he came to power in 1978, uh, what he said is, you know, it, it had been expanded way too much. And it covered far too large of a territory. And he never said that the anti-rights campaign was completely wrong. But there were only a handful of people who were left that he still did not free. I mean, out of 550,000 roughly uh, who were alive, who had been rightists, virtually all of them uh, were freed and forgiven. But my, my hunch is, and this is only a hunch, because I don't have the smoking gun, that he felt that uh, the, the state and government needs a authority. And if you too quickly, easily say uh, that we're all, all wrong with it, no matter what people said in criticism of the government, they can get away with it. I think that would be too much for him. As I look, you know, consistent with his behavior, whenever it, it got pretty wide, he wanted to maintain the authority of the party and the government to crack down and place limits. And so my, my hunch is that he wanted to keep that principle, even though nearly everybody uh, who had been accused of being anti rights would have had their uh, problems reversed, had their conclusions reversed. Let me not be accused of being a let me not be accused of being a leftist and go over the right side. <laughs> um, would you speculate? Uh, what do you think Dunn would think if you were alive right now, looking at modern China? <laughs> Somebody carried had been publicly punished 
uh, during the Cultural Revolution, they were immobilized. And when he felt he wanted to get people to do anything, and he kept saying he wanted cadres who got his wall, you know, who, who dared to do things. Yeah, that's what he wanted. And in order to get people to do that, he couldn't punish them for every little thing. If he did that, they'd be afraid. And so he was, as long as you could make economic progress in your local area, he was ready to overlook quite a bit. And I think now, if he were alive now, he would say that's gone too far and you got to crop down. And I think given his personal authority, he would be able to crop down. Another thing, you know, done in his early part of his life, said some will get rich first. That meant that at a certain point, those who got rich should be helping other areas. And I think even perhaps even before uh, the current leadership moved to help the others, Dung would feel that was now the time. And that he had been a leader at the time when those, the coastal areas had been allowed to get rich. And now was the time you got to push, and he might even push even further. Uh, and moving to the inland. So I think those, and, and also, he would have been putting down the military uh, who were creating problems in the South China Sea with their neighbors. He felt that, uh, he kept saying, Kamatachi, big circumstance. The overall, was important to have peace. In order to keep improving the lives of Chinese, they had to have peaceful relations with the outside. The Soviet Union made a bad mistake by getting so many enemies and overspending on military that they weren't able to help develop and strengthen their own country. And that he, uh, having more authority over the military than the current leaders do, I think he would have uh, clamped down on those military leaders more quickly uh, and uh, he would be promoting more military to military discussions with the outside. Okay, so what, and what would you think of the current leadership? They don't have enough verbs to, they ought to be tougher and uh, they ought to you know, be bolder than the way they're doing things. Uh, they're, they're well behaved. Um, I literally got the feeling that they were behaving too much like bureaucrats and not enough like real political leaders. I, my hunch is that's the way he would feel. We have, we have unfortunately, we have come to the end of our time. And I can tell you that uh, what you have heard is a flavor of what you will will see in the book, read in the book. In fact, what you just heard is, is very similar to the last paragraph. I apologize for those who've already read the book. No, but it's great because it's, it's um, I mean, it's a view of China that we really often don't get. It's the textured view. It's the view that's based on uh, triangulation, as you put it. But.